Father, we ask right now that you would bless us with humility to receive your word. And we pray that you would cause a great reverence to grip our hearts right now. Awaken us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wonder if you can uh, think of something in your life that has not lived up to expectations, where something had a, a reputation and it was met with reality and you were deflated. So for me, I watched Home Alone 1 and Home Alone 2 about a hundred times, literally a hundred times at, at least. And they were classics. And if you haven't watched it, please do yourself a favor and go watch them tonight. And the name of Home Alone had a, a stellar reputation globally and certainly in my heart. And then came along Home Alone 3 and Home Alone 4 and it tarnished the name of Home Alone because they were duds. And so this great reputation of Home Alone was met with the reality that it simply could not meet the expectations from Home Alone 1 and Home Alone 2. Now that's a bit of a lighthearted example, but what we're going through today in the Church of Sardis is uh, the, the time where a reputation has been met with reality and unfortunately the reality has not met the reputation. So Jesus says to this church in Sardis, he says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive but you are dead. And so he calls them to wake up. And he says in verse three, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. So this church is bordering on not being a church at all. That's the reality. If it wasn't for the faithful remnant that we see in verse four, if it wasn't for them, who have not soiled their garments, then this church would be dead. It wouldn't actually be a church at all. And so the call from Jesus is to wake up. And so if this is what Jesus says, if he's calling them to wake up, then what does it mean to be asleep? That's a good question. What does it mean to be asleep? And in this context, the idea of being asleep is always connected with our actions and whether our actions are demonstrating that we are actually children of light, which is to be awake, or whether our actions are demonstrating that we are children of darkness, which is to be asleep. So Paul in, in Romans 13 describes this uh, really well. He says, the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So here Paul is saying, that now is not the time to sleep because sleep is connected with darkness and darkness leads to immorality and idolatry. Sleep or darkness is connected with spiritual laziness, which as we've been going through in these letters to the church is connected with things like 
the misplaced devotion that we have from the seductiveness of our culture, which actually captivates us and takes our desires away from God and onto these things that will never satisfy us. And they lead to immorality and idolatry. It leads to half-hearted commitment to Christ. Or as Paul says here in things like jealousy, quarreling. This kind of sleep is another way of saying, and this is the reality of this, This kind of sleep is saying, if your life continues in this, if your life continues in what would be categorized or characterized, sorry, as sleep, then it will likely be the evidence that you were never actually born again, that you were never actually awakened and in light. Whereas being awake, as we are called to, is following the call that Paul gives to make no provision for the flesh, to gratify its desires. So if we are awake, then we make no provision for the flesh. So this idea of sleeping, which Christ rebukes, is is where you do actually gratify the desires of the flesh. So this is the key thing. Sleep is where you actually follow the desires of your flesh. And this is a key aspect of identifying whether you are awake or asleep, what you desire. Desire is is a key aspect of this. And see, if your desires, if you would call yourself a Christian, and if your desires remain unchanged from when you did not know Christ to when you came to Christ, yet your desires remain exactly the same, or if perhaps you've grown up in church and your desires, what you actually desire for in this life, if they look no different to anyone else in this world, then perhaps there is an issue. Perhaps you actually have not been awakened to the light because your desires are actually for things that Paul says are for those who live in darkness to just gratify the desires of the flesh. And the only way, this is kind of like the elephant in the room of modern Christianity, because we live in a world now where actually um, we're pretty, we set the bar pretty low for the requirements to be a Christian. And if, if you just kind of a part of a church and if you profess Christ, then you're in, regardless of what your life looks like. And I think the only way to make provision for that, to allow people to have the same desires that that everyone else in this world has, the same desires that are simply for success, materialism, a happy life, is if you believe in a small God who does not transform lives. And I don't know about you, but I don't believe in a small God who doesn't transform lives. I believe in a big God who is still transforming lives right now. And I believe that this God who transformed lives, who when he opens his hand and satisfies the desires of every living thing, which is something we talk about a lot here, this idea of satisfaction, is actually because he changes your desires to show that he is the all satisfying God. And so your desires are changed now. So satisfaction in Christ is not because you think, God, I'd really love if you give me that Lexus or that new house or that new holiday. And then we're satisfied because God gives us that. That's just treating God like a cosmic genie who's you rub and he'll give you what you want. Actually, 
living in the light and having these new desires is when you turn to God and realize that he is all satisfying, that Jesus is the bread of life by whom we come to and we will never grow hungry or thirsty again. We find satisfaction in him because he is supremely worthy of all things, of all of our devotion. And in him is this place where we are actually satisfied, not because we just have our desires that look no different to the world satisfied, but because he actually gives us new desires for him. And so what you desire will be an indication as to whether you are awake or asleep. And so sleep here is where your life is not awakened to the majesty of Christ. And so your desires or your life looks no different to anyone else in this world. And we see this on a larger scale in churches all across the Western world where they have a reputation of being alive, but really they may be dead. I mean, the the criteria which Jesus judges here that we see in this passage, the criteria which Jesus judges as to whether a church is alive is that they have lives that are conformed to the pattern of holiness set out in his word, which must look different to the world. So their lives are not in immorality and sensuality, as Paul says in Romans 13, not in quarreling and jealousy. So the criteria for being alive is not whether a church has lively worship, which is kind of a buzzword that gets thrown around that really just means like a banging sound system, someone with a great voice and charismatic preachers. That's not lively worship that Jesus refers to. It's whether their lives are shaped by God's call to be holy as he is holy, to have a heart that desires him that desires this all-satisfying saviour. This topic of what constitutes being alive or or revived um, has always been a, a hot topic in Christianity, but particularly 200 years ago, you may have heard of the Great Awakening, which was in America two to 300 years ago. And there was a second great awakening, which uh, was not long after where God basically did incredible things and drew many, many thousands of people to himself. And there are firsthand accounts of what was happening in that time. There's a lot of pastors who were describing what was happening. And one of the pastors is, is describing what was happening during this second great awakening, awakening. And he says, the way that we could see that revival was happening was not because men saw weeping multitudes, unrestrained noise or, or high excitement that they believed a revival had begun. It wasn't because of those things. On the contrary, such things, which are sometimes supposed to be of the essence of revival, were almost entirely absent in the Northeast during the greater part of the Second Great Awakening. It wasn't in hysterical things, though, if God wants to do that, he'll do it. And we should never box him in our box of comfortability. But the reality is that what was happening here when people were being awakened, he goes on to say, the first you would know of persons under awakening was that they would be at all the religious meetings and manifest a silent and eager attention. That's how he characterized being awakened was that they would be at all the religious meetings. They would want to come. They would want to know more and be part of a community and hear the word of God and gather for prayer. And they would manifest a silent and eager attention. Something had gripped them. 
Something had gripped them and they had an eager attention. We have a, a shallow and surface level measurement of how alive churches are. And this should be a sobering warning to us that Jesus does not use the same criteria we often employ. Now, I should say, just as a bit of a sidebar for, for individuals, I do believe that there are some Christians who are genuinely elect of God, genuine Christians who can be sleepy just because we, we lapse. We're, just, we're human, we remain human, and we lapse into um, moments of laziness. And so being sleepy may not mean that you are not born again. It, it may just mean that you have lapsed into laziness, but the evidence that you are a sleepy Christian, as opposed to someone who is just sleepy, which is living in darkness, the evidence that you are a sleepy Christian is that you will hear this call from Jesus to wake up and you will respond in faith. And so this brings us to the call to wake up. So Jesus says in verse three, if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And this is a, a severe warning. This is basically saying that if you are found asleep, when I come, that's it. There's no waking up after that. This idea of a thief returning in the context of being called to wake up is usually connected with Christ's final return. If you would like to um, geek out over the text, come chat to me afterwards because there are different views on, on this. Um, but if you'll accept my, my word now, I believe there's um, very, it's quite clear that actually when Jesus warns here that I will come like a thief, it's actually because that will be in his final return, which is to say, time's up. So Paul talks about this in 1 Thessalonians 5. And, and Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, talking about the day of the Lord, he says, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. And this is meant to convey the imagery of false peacefulness because sleep is peaceful, right? At least I remember before Eliora, sleep was a peaceful thing. But the terrifying thing about this is that those who are asleep this is terrifying. Those who are asleep and who remain in that place, they think that nothing is wrong. That's, that's the point. They're going about their peaceful lives. And see, the point of this is that those who are awake, those who live in the light, those who are awake, the return of Christ won't be like a thief in the same sense as it will be for those who are asleep. For those who are asleep, it will be terrifying. But in this passage in 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul goes on to say, but you are not in darkness, brothers. You're not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. So he's saying you in the light, this day doesn't have to surprise you like a thief. No, that's for those in darkness. So it's like there are two different worlds here. There are two different worlds. Those, the, the world of light and the world of darkness. And in light, those who are awake, the return of Christ will be glorious, joyful. It's, it's entering into eternity. Those who are in darkness, it will be terrifying. It will be unimaginable, indescribable. 
And the warning is it could come at any time. So wake up, be awake so that this day will be a glorious triumphant day rather than a terrifying nightmare. And so what does it look like to be awake? This, this idea of being awake is tied up with being watchful, being watchful or sober-minded. It's a lifestyle that is primarily concerned with Christ. See, we have, we have lists in Scripture that tell us how to live, that tell us how to live um, in a way that is awake. So we have the commands, you might think of the Ten Commandments. We have moral imperatives like Ephesians 4. We have the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But if you're living your life as a Christian and um, let's say someone cuts you off in the road, on, on the road and you want to start swearing your head off at them and then you think, oh, hang on, what does it say in Ephesians 4? Oh yeah, let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth except that which is for edification. Okay, I won't swear at this person. Or if you think, I want to kill someone, hang on, what does it say in God's word? Oh yeah, we shouldn't kill. Of course, that's not the way you should live, right? So this idea of being awake and being sober-minded is actually more of a, a disposition that we have, kind of like a, a posture where everything is filtered through the question of how does this bring glory to God? That's what it means to be awake. Everything is filtered naturally through this question of how does this bring glory to God? So for your workplace, when you're thinking about your workplace, do you think about your work in terms of whether it glorifies God? Is, is my office a chance to serve God? Because I know that he is sovereign over everything. I know that Jesus reigns over every square inch of the earth, of this universe. And so when I am at work, I'm no less communing with Jesus. He's no less sovereign over this workplace than when I'm here on a Sunday morning. So therefore... How can I glorify him? Or how can I take comfort in the fact that he is sovereign over my workplace? Or for the gym, if you like physical fitness, do you think about physical fitness in terms of how this honors the Lord by perhaps leading a healthy lifestyle, treating your body well so that you can better serve the Lord in the future? Or is it just so you can have a ripped body for summer season and show it off on the beach, though we don't have beaches in Canberra. Head down to Pine Island and show it off. How do you think about your body? How do you think about these things? Is it in terms of how does this glorify God? Or is it simply in terms of how is this going to help me or serve me? Being awake is to have a heart and mind that is concerned with Christ and his name and therefore how your life, which is in his name, reflects his worth and glory. That's what it means to be awake. See, here's the thing. The, the church at Sardis, if we come back to this, this text here at the beginning, they had a good reputation to the surrounding culture, right? Jesus recognizes that you have the reputation of being alive, they had a good reputation to the surrounding culture, but maybe they were more concerned with their own reputation than they were with Christ's reputation. Because to be awake is to be concerned with the reputation of Christ and his glory. 
Whereas if your concern is for your own reputation, then that is what it means to be asleep. That is what it means to live in immorality and idolatry. This idea of being awake is in direct contrast to being stained by the world. So if you look at verse four, the only commendation Christ gives to this church is that there are some there who have not soiled their garments. I wonder what imagery comes to your mind there. There are some there who have not soiled their garments. So to not be primarily concerned with Christ in your life is to care more for your name or your desires, which is to make way for spiritual laziness to enter, which leads to immorality and idolatry, which is to defile your garments. So to, to not be concerned with Christ and how your life is to reflect his worth and his glory is to make way for spiritual laziness, which leads to immorality and idolatry, which is to defile your garments. So a life that looks exactly like anyone else in this world is a life that as far as Christ is concerned, and this is the reality, is defiled and dead. It's not life in his name. And the final point I wanna make on this idea of being awake and watchful is the essential task in the Christian community to bear witness to Christ through evangelism. So notice that in the second half of verse two, Jesus says, your works are incomplete. So you church of Sardis, I've found your works to be incomplete. And I've said before in this series, the works for these churches in Revelation, these seven churches are largely concerned with how they are faithfully witnessing amidst a pagan culture, how they are fulfilling the task that God has always given to his people and that Jesus reiterates in Acts 1.8, you are to be my witnesses. This is the task of these churches. This is the works they are to do. How are they meant to bear witness to Christ in a pagan culture? And I don't think it's a coincidence that the warning Jesus gives in verse five of this text has to do with bearing witness to one's name. So Jesus says in verse five, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments and I will never blot out, I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. See, Jesus warns the church that he will not confess their name before his father because they have not been faithful in confessing his name before the world, which is what they've been called to. Now, I believe that there is more to the Christian community than um, simply evangelism. I believe that's fundamental, but I, I believe there is more. But evangelism... This task of bearing witness is central. It's central to the Christian community. See, there is always a connection with being alive in Christ and the task of testifying. If you think about the early church and the apostles who were very much alive, they described when they were faced, uh, confronted by the Sanhedrin, which was the religious leaders of the day, 
They said, we can't help but speak of all we have seen and heard. We can't help but testify. I mean, they were basically told like, hey, you better stop talking about Jesus or we'll kill you. And they said, as you guys do, whatever you think is right in your eyes. But as for us, we can't help but speaking about all we have seen and heard. This is central to our being. If you stop us from doing this, we have no life. We have no existence. And in this central task of evangelism, I believe that we have to understand both the duty of evangelism as well as the natural overflow that is evangelism. So the duty and the natural overflow. One guy describes evangelism like this. He says, evangelism logically and spontaneously overflows from the fact that something incredible has happened in Jesus Christ. So evangelism logically and spontaneously overflows because in Jesus Christ, something incredible has happened. Sinners have been completely forgiven through the blood of Christ and reconciled to their maker, reconciled to their creator because of nothing they have done, but because of Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. And now we have freedom and life in his name. So he says it logically flows from that because logically, if you realize, okay, in Christ, we have the offer of forgiveness of sins. And this is an offer for all people at all times, anywhere in the world, regardless of what you have done, just trust in the name of Jesus Christ and you have life, you have forgiveness. Then logically you think, well, I must tell people because that's just, that's not just my truth. That's the truth. Logically, people have to hear the gospel is public truth for all people at all times. So it logically flows, but it spontaneously overflows because if you think, oh, this gift has come to me and I've done nothing for it. And now I who rejected God can now have life in his name, can now find satisfaction in him, can now serve him in obedience, which I could never do before. It just bubbles out over you like it did for the apostles. And so I want you to feel the weight of this as a duty, like this is a duty and I am um, unashamed to, to say that evangelism is a duty of the Christians. It, it will look different for different people, but at the heart of the, the life of Christians is this task of bearing witness. But I also want you to realize that the duty of evangelism will come about as you are saturated by the goodness of God in Christ. And so if you feel like you are in a rut, then I would just say, come back to this place of basking in the sheer goodness of God. Just come back to this place of remembering that God doesn't actually need you. He's the God who has not served with man's hands as though he needed anything because he himself gives to all things, life, breath, and everything. God doesn't need you, but he calls you to enter into this task of witnessing so that you may enjoy it so that you may delight in him. Being awake means being awakened to the reality of Christ. And our central task as part of being in Christ is to take 
what we have received and heard, like it says in verse three, take what we have received and heard, preserve it in community like we do today and testify it before others. And so I just want to finish with three very simple applications. These are like 10 second things. Don't get um, anxious because I said three more. It's not like 20 minute things. These are three very simple applications. This is um, a heavy, heavy topic. I mean, if you understand it rightly, it's a heavy topic. It's talking about life or death, being awake or asleep. And there's really no middle ground there. It's either awake in Christ or asleep and dead. And so as a way that we can respond to this, I think there are three helpful things. When it comes to uh, bearing witness, I think a really simple thing that you can do is firstly, take two minutes, just two minutes every morning to intentionally pray for an opportunity to bear witness. Because the reality is that we don't initiate anything. God is the one who is fulfilling his redemptive plan. We merely join in on what he is doing. And the way that he calls us to join in is to pray, pray for opportunity. So take two minutes. That's not a lot of time each morning to pray and just ask Father, would you give me an opportunity to bear witness to your name in some way, whether it is uh, buying lunch for that homeless man on the street and bearing witness to your generosity and your self-giving love, or whether it is in the elevator at work, just having an opportunity to share about the hope in Christ. And I believe because you are the God who raises the dead, you can raise up a conversation for me to have. That's the first application. Second is to commit to prayer meetings. So we, we pray Wednesday nights and Sunday nights. And uh, I, again, will be unashamed to um, stress the importance of that uh, because I take a great weight of responsibility in shepherding this community, this small community. And I believe that... Um, if we are not praying as a community, we're not on the right track. If we as a, a church cannot commit to praying together, we're probably not on the right track. And so uh, I would just um, encourage you to commit to at least one a week. If you can make it to both, that's great. But commit to these prayer meetings because they are the means by which God actually shapes us as a community to then rightly bear witness. They are the moments where, like we went over um, in the evidence of revival, where God starts stirring hearts. Evidence of that is always the desire for a Christian community to gather and pray and have an eager attention. And thirdly, just a final encouragement to immerse yourself in the word of God through a reading plan. Have a reading plan. Um, there's plenty on the Bible app. And I will gladly, if, if you want accountability, I'll start another reading plan with anyone who wants. Maybe we could do one as a community. But commit to a reading plan where you are immersing yourself in the word of God, being shaped by Holy Scripture. 
And I just want to uh, pray now as we, we finish. Um, please, uh, please allow yourself time to reflect upon this. Like there's, um, there's a moment, I've, I've probably said this before, there's a moment right now at the end of a service where it's almost like there's something grabbing at your mind. And I get it all the time. It's like something saying, what are you going to eat for lunch today? What are you going to do later on in the afternoon? And there's this pull. And there's this pull so that you would not actually take this message to heart and reflect upon it and respond in faith. And so I just encourage you now as I pray, um, and after that, Andrew will come up and um, actually, no, we'll share communion first. So um, I just want to give maybe 30 seconds for you after I pray to just reflect upon this and just ask those simple questions of, am I awake? Is there evidence in my life to demonstrate that I am awake? Or if not, maybe now is a time to respond in faith and trust in that free gift from Christ. Let me pray. Father, I, I pray right now that you would please uh, do what only you can for, for I feel weak and my words, I fumble around, but I trust that your Holy Spirit can right now bring conviction where is needed upon our hearts and can stir us up in a way that, that will magnify your name. And so I pray that you would please just give us Give us hearts that will respond to this. Speak to us, please. Help us to reflect now upon your wonderful gift of grace by which we who are sinners can be reconciled and redeemed and restored, made right with the God of heaven and earth through Jesus Christ, through the death and resurrection of our Saviour. Help us. Help us to be a people that show that we are awake. Awaken us to your majesty. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.